0: In your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to take a little break from our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We are almost through, uh, but uh, decided that uh, we're going to take a little bit of a, uh, a respite from our study in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're going to focus upon uh, the Lord's Supper, as I told you last Sunday we would. And then uh, when I get back from Belize, I'm going to talk about missions a little bit. So that'll be uh, the last Sunday of this month, and then we'll resume our state in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the first Sunday in August. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed... For our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your Word and We thank you for the way it continually over and over again points us to Christ. We know he is the central focus of your word. And I pray that you would indeed take your word this morning and use it in our lives to point us more clearly, more directly to Christ. Thank you for this passage that points us to him in such a specific way. And I pray that we would see him in all his beauty in all His glory, all His wonder, and be drawn to Him as we prepare our hearts to come to His table. We ask it in His name. Amen. Well, it's been said and it's true that the Bible is a very bloody book. Especially in the Old Testament, there are many references to blood. There are certain passages in the Old Testament where it just seems like there's blood everywhere. Because the religion of the Jews in the Old Testament was centered on sacrifice and offerings. An essential part of their worship and an essential part of their relationship with God was the offering of sacrifices to Him. Some of those offerings were grain offerings or from the fruit of the ground. But most of those offerings were animal sacrifices that involved the shedding of blood those animal or blood sacrifices were sin offerings. The Jews in the Old Testament would not think of approaching God without coming to Him with some sort of sacrifice in hand. You know, the design of both the tabernacle and the temple focused their attention upon the importance of sacrifice. The Holy of Holies and the Holy Place were in the back. And before you got there, there was an altar. And those who came to worship, either in the tabernacle or the temple, were instructed to come to the altar. And they came bringing an animal. And the priest would take that animal, he would sacrifice it, after the worshiper had placed their hands first upon the animal themselves. Symbolically transferring their sin and their guilt to that animal. And then the priest would sacrifice it and put the blood in the appointed places that God had designed. It's an act of sacrifice for the sins of those who came to worship. Why all this emphasis on blood? Why was the blood so important to the Jews in the Old Testament? Why was the blood sprinkled in various places, placed in various places? It was because they understood a very important biblical principle that's enunciated actually in the New Testament. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Did you hear that? The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So they knew that in order to worship God, in order to be forgiven by God, in order to have a relationship with God, they needed to come to Him, sprinkled with or covered with the blood. These animals that the people brought in the Old Testament were to be without blemish. They were to have no defect. When the sacrifice was brought to the priest... Again, the worshiper would lay his hands upon that animal. The priest would take that animal on their behalf and then offer it as a substitute for them. The laying of the hands on the head of the animal was a symbolic transfer of their sin to that animal, of their guilt to that animal. And so it was clear that when that animal was sacrificed, it was being sacrificed in their place. There was a real sense of atonement, a real sense of forgiveness as these people in the Old Testament came to the priest bearing their animal sacrifices to be offered and blood to be shed in their place. It's obvious, isn't it? That even the Old Testament, the Gospel, is clearly presented. You see, there wasn't one plan of salvation in the Old Testament and a different plan of salvation in the New Testament. But believers in both eras, Old Testament and New Testament, have been saved the same way. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Samuel, David, and even Isaiah. We're saved in the same way that you and I are saved today. You say, they looked in faith to the coming of the Messiah who would shed His blood as a sacrifice for their sin. We look by faith to the Messiah who has shed His blood as a sacrifice for our sin. Salvation has always been by grace through faith it's always been by the grace of God through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, God does not change. Nor does His way of dealing with sin change. The Jews in the Old Testament could not be saved without this process or this principle of transference. Transferring their sin and their guilt to the animal to be sacrificed for them. And is the same way with you and me. We can, neither be, we can also neither be saved without that principle of transference. Because what God does in our situation is He lays our sin and our guilt upon His Son. And He takes what we deserve in our place and He serves as our substitute. God transfers our sin and our guilt to Jesus. I'm not sure there is a passage in the Bible that shows us that as clearly as the one we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 53. As we prepare our hearts this morning to observe the Lord's Supper, I want to draw just a few points from this text. And in doing so, I want you to see that Jesus really has paid it all for you. There's a great old hymn that says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's what Isaiah is talking about here in this passage. Three things briefly. First, I want you to see the reality of sin the reality of sin. I am convinced that one of our biggest problems is that we minimize the reality of sin and do not see how grotesque our sin is in the eyes of a holy God. Now let me be more personal. I'm convinced my biggest problem is that I minimize the problem of sin. And that I do not see how grotesque my sin is in the eyes of a holy God. And that really is where you must begin. Because if you do not see and understand the reality of your sin, you'll never understand the fullness and the reality and the wonder of God's grace. Now Isaiah understood that. Remember, Isaiah had this great vision of God recorded for us back in chapter 6 of this book. Remember the story? Isaiah saw God seated on His throne in all His glory, in all His holiness. And he saw the angels, the seraphim, who attended Him. They had six wings, remember? Two they used to fly, two they used to cover their faces, two they used to cover their feet and they used them to cover their faces and their feet because they were overwhelmed by the holiness of God when Isaiah saw this great vision of God in all his glory and his holiness and his purity his first reaction was how different he was from that And all Isaiah could do was think about his own sin in contrast to God's holiness. And he exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I know it because my eyes have seen the King. How do we see the reality of our sin? It's by seeing it in view of the holiness of God. You must understand the reality of your sin if you're going to understand the reality and the wonder of grace. Look at how Isaiah puts it. In verse 4, he talks about our griefs and our sorrows. Down in verse 5, he talks about our transgressions and our iniquities. You see, you have to own your own sin if you're going to own God's remedy for sin. You must see the reality of it. Second, I want you to see the wonder of grace. You see the wonder of grace against the backdrop of the reality of sin. Sin is the background that makes grace shine so brightly. Think of the sky at night. The darker the night, the brighter the sky. The darker the night, the more clearly you see the heavenly bodies. The more you realize and appreciate the darkness, the more you realize and appreciate the beauty of the sky above. And that's the way it is with grace. The more you see the reality and the darkness of your own sin, the more you will see the beauty and the wonder of grace. Over in Romans chapter 6, very familiar verse in verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's when you understand that the wages of sin is death that you appreciate more fully the free gift, which is eternal life. Over in Ephesians 2, we see a very similar thing where Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead, he says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Then in verse 3. And you were also, he says, by nature, children of wrath. Not a very pretty picture, is it? You were dead, Paul says, in sin. You were children of wrath. But then we have two of the greatest words in all the Bible. And they are, but God. But God, you were dead. You were a child of God's wrath. But God... Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. You see, you can find that contrast all the way through the Bible. And it's that contrast that shows us the wonder and the marvel of God's grace. The more you understand the reality of your sin, the more you will understand and appreciate the reality of sin of God's grace to you in Christ. I know, I know, sin's not a very popular subject. People don't like to hear about sin. People don't like to hear about what a despicable sinner they are. What a great, great contrast there is between the wonderful purity of God's holiness. The darkness of man's heart. We don't like to hear it. There are churches that accommodate that dislike. They say, well, you're not really all that bad. All you need is just a little help. A little nudge to make yourself a little bit better so you can be what God wants you to be. The Bible doesn't say you need to be helped. The Bible says you need to be changed. The Bible says that you need to be born again. That you must become a new creation. And when you understand that, you begin to realize what a wonderful Savior and what a wonderful salvation you have. Then third, I want you to see the provision of a substitute. Because just as the Old Testament believers looked at that animal sacrifice as their substitute, so, that we, so we also looked at Christ as ours. They could not bring a lamb or a goat or a bull, a calf, with any blemish. What has God given to us? He's given to us the spotless, perfect Lamb of God to be our substitute. For sin, Look how he's described in verses 2 and 3 of our text. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him that one who was despised and rejected by men is the one who is beautiful in the eyes of believers. Verse 4 again. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. Our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. You see, that's where Isaiah begins to focus upon the idea of Jesus being our substitute. He died in our place. His death for our life. He was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. But then Isaiah makes it all the more clear in verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the Bible's description of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. We're like sheep that have wandered away. We've turned to our own way. But the Lord, he says, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. You see, that's the beauty of the transference. God has caused the iniquity of us all. Guess who that includes? That includes you, and that includes me. God has caused our iniquity to be laid upon His Son, the One who knew no sin, took your sin. The One who didn't deserve to be punished, took your punishment. The One who was the Son of God, who had fellowship with God through all eternity, was forsaken by God that you might not have to be yourself. He is your substitute. He took your place and God transferred what you deserved onto Him. And He took it willingly and gladly. That's what this table represents this morning. It represents in a very visual way that Jesus is the substitute for our sin. He died for you. Not just for you in general, but for you in particular. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Have you embraced it? Does it change your life? I want to talk to the children for a few moments this morning. Children, young people, those of you who not yet perhaps have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, who have not made a, what we call a profession of faith, a public profession of your faith, perhaps have not joined the church, i to talk to you for just a moment. Because this is the most important thing. This, what, what is on this table this morning represents the only solution for your problem of sin. Now I know sin... It's hard to to grasp sometimes. It's even hard for adults to grasp sometimes. But, But it's easier to understand what sin is when you begin to realize, you know, sin is when I disobey my parents, when I'm not kind to my friends, when I won't share my toys, when I don't do what I'm asked to do, when I take something that doesn't belong to me and I'm selfish with what I have. See, all those things are sin. And because of those things, you deserve to be punished. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has taken what you deserve and put it upon His Son. God has allowed His Son to be your substitute. And all you have to do is trust Him. All you have to do is say, I believe that what Jesus did, He did for me. That when Jesus died on the cross, He died in my place. That Jesus took my sin upon Himself. God transferred. He, He took my sin and gave it to His Son. And believe that to be the truth and embrace it for yourself. I would encourage you to do that. If you have questions about what to do or how to do it, talk to your parents. Or talk to me. Or ask one of the elders. We'd be glad to tell you what you need to do and how you can do it to experience in your own life that Jesus is your substitute for sin. Believe it. Trust in it. Rejoice in it. It is. It is. The gift of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that Jesus is our Savior. That our sin and our guilt has been transferred to him. And so we pray now that you would help us as we partake of these elements to do so with humility and grace. Reminded grace that stands in such stark contrast to our sin. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to read from um, Luke chapter 22 which is Luke's account of the Last Supper where he says this When the hour had come Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying... This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, and after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments that Christ has given to his church. It is, as we say, a visual picture of spiritual realities. When the elders, in just a few moments, take the cover off of the table, you're going to see again bread and cups of juice representing the body and the blood of Jesus. There are different emotions that we have as we come to the Lord's table. We come with humility, broken because we realize that we are sinners, we come with sorrow. Saddened that our sin caused this in the life of our Savior. We come with some resolve to repent, to do better. We do come with joy. Joy because of what Christ has done for us. I was asked by a young person not too long ago, why don't we have more joy in the Lord's Supper? That's a great question. Because this is the greatest gift that has ever been given. So we come with all those emotions to the Lord's table this morning. It's my privilege to invite you. It's my responsibility to warn you. This table is open for all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, who have made a public profession of faith in Him and who are living in a way desirous to please and to honor Him. This table is not for people who are hardened in their sin who are unrepentant who don't know Jesus who are harboring some sin in their lives which they're not willing at this point in their lives to give up. But if you are repentant this morning, if you are like Isaiah and say, woe is me, and realize the wonder and the beauty of God's grace in contrast to your sin, this table is for you. Please partake of the elements. As the